Okay, so it's, uh, it's October 2nd, 2013, Wednesday night. Our message tonight is called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. No, I've not seen the television program. We don't have a TV. But what I was doing was contemplating the mercies and greatness of God. And uh, I'm going to confess to you tonight, this is not one of those messages that a theologian is going to be proud of as well-crafted. But I never cared much about what they thought anyway. I have never seen those guys out there in the ditches building orphanages where we've been, Curtis. I've never seen the wise Bible commentators on the rooftops in Mexico either. So I don't know why we place such a high premium on what those fellows think. What I did was I wrote down a few scriptures tonight, which is not always normal for me. Susan's even got a list of them, and praise God, that'll keep us on track that did nothing but encouraged me. Have you ever had a week where when you looked around, you're like, hmm, what is good? <laughs> What's left that is going well? I got reports about missions and reports about all kinds of things this week that they were just disturbing to me. Y'all never had a week like that? Yeah. Don't lie, I watched all y'all struggle with the homeschool co-op, right? <laughs> I can see the strongest people in the Lord that I know frayed. And uh, not afraid, but frayed. That's because we're in spiritual battle. And every once in a while when we're in spiritual battle, and I, I'm going to tell you the truth, I'd a whole lot rather fight with uh, six demons and one woman in Romania than I would like to sit in a room with four-year-olds that are, are struggling. Uh, it's just not my calling, you know. <laughs> Sometimes in the middle of spiritual warfare, it's necessary to get your finger up in the air, find out what the Lord is doing, and let your heart begin to glorify at what God has already done. Amen? Yes. Turn with me then to Acts 11. We're going to be in verse 18. You all remember our singles class? Can anybody say the word plethora? <laughs> El guapo. You keep using that word. We're going to have a plethora of scriptures this evening. Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Friends, how did we start this race? It was with a heavenly grant, a gift from on high. One day you realize the depth and depravity of your sin, and that in itself was a gift from God. Do you know how many people the proverb is true of? There's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end it leads to destruction, but the man believes he's going the right way, has no need to repent. It is a gift that at some place in your Christian walk, you came to that wall and said, you know, I can't continue like this. If that's how we began our walk, it's worth considering how good God has been. Are you better off now or when you, the day before you were granted repentance? Anybody better off today? Sometimes it's good just to think about that. Where would you be if God had not granted you repentance? Oh, what an ugly thing. I, I, I would hate to think about where I would be. Look at Colossians 2.13 with me. Suffice it to say that Colossians says it this way. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. What condition were you in when he found you and when he granted you repentance were you worthy were you doing anything good the bible calls you spiritually dead a hard leathery heart that needs to have a razor put to it just to make it useful and that's the situation he found us in and he forgave us then do you really think his favor is not with you now see the devil works full time to discourage you he works all of the time to tell you things are not going well. 
He works all of the time to get you to view yourself in a way that God does not view you. In this church, we place a high premium on sacrifice. We place a high premium on personal responsibility and the obedience that flows from faith. And you hear message after message after message on those things, but we can't miss in the middle of all of this, you didn't do anything for God to give you the gift of repentance. He simply laid it out there and you received it. You didn't do anything for him to save you. You were dead and he forgave you by giving you a gift. That says something about his nature and about his love for you. And I'm pretty sure, Haley, he's not going to give up on you and me yet. I'm pretty sure, Jacob, no matter what the world tells us, he's not going to give up on us yet. How about this one in Acts 16? I love the way it says it. It's the 14th verse. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. We say salvation is a gift. We say that you were dead when he found you. How is it that you found the ability to respond to the message? God himself opened and unlocked the corridors of your heart. If he opened and unlocked the corridors of your heart when you were dead, if he opened and unlocked the corridors of your heart before you repented, as he's granting you the gift of repentance, is there anybody that you love that he can't do that for now? See, every once in a while we get saddened by what is sickening behavior in the world. And we forget where we were when he found us. Every once in a while, a Christian disappoints you because they don't act like Christ. And you forget how we came into this race. Were it not for him granting you unmerited, absolute gift of repentance, we'd still be dead in our sins because that's where he found us. And were it not for him unlocking our hearts in a way that enabled us to respond to him, what hope would you have? Oh, it's worth remembering this when we're looking around us, not just so that we're not judgmental of people, so that you have hope for them. Am I the only one that gets a little discouraged when I see people in the name of Jesus do terrible things? I, I, I would like to be the judge, jury, and executioner in that setting, and I'm glad that I'm not, because it's very easy to forget where I've come from. It's very easy to forget where I often fall now. Right? Everybody hates everyone else's sin and loves their own, don't they? How about James 1? Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth. Who chose to give you birth? I thought I decided to become born again, not according to the Scripture. According to the scripture, he granted you the ability to repent. Then he opened the door of your heart while you were dead, and he chose to give you birth. I don't know, but if you chose to bring a child in this world, how quickly would you disown him? Probably not all that quickly, huh? He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. What is God's destiny for us? He wants to show you off to the universe. That says something about God. It says something about what he thinks about you. It says something about the level of investment he has in you. He found you when you were still dead. He gave you the ability to turn around and then he opened your heart to a message so that in getting a new birth that he caused in you, he could show you off to the heavenly powers. That's a little different view of, uh, of God than an angry old man with a stick, isn't it? He loves you. He's investing in you. Do you remember Moses worried about God's reputation? And he said, if you kill them all now, Lord, they'll say that you weren't able to bring them into the land you had promised. We serve the same God who is still zealous for his reputation. And if he's brought you this far, friends... I bet he's able to bring you the rest of the way. 
Here comes 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Somebody say deep conviction. You know how we lived when we were among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. What condition were they in when they heard the message? Oh, they were sinners who were dead in their sin, who were granted the gift of repentance. And in that repentance, God opened their hearts to receive a message, and he destined them for something. What was the proof that their transformation was real? What was the proof that God was working among them? He said, you didn't receive it simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. How do I know that no matter what J.J. and Natalie are going through today, that the work of God in them is real? I've seen the power of God work in their lives. I've seen deep convictions that I know were not there before they were born again. Their lives have changed. It is worth looking at where you have come from, friends. Oh, tell the truth, the year before you were saved, could you even imagine yourself giving up Thursday nights to go clean toilets at a warehouse church? Could you even imagine getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning so that you didn't miss your brothers on the way? To go preach to people in prison? Who does that? And then stay behind to pray for a couple hours before a service where nobody will ever acknowledge you and your pastor will probably beat you up during the prayer for not being vocal enough? Amen. You would think that somebody must be out of their mind for this, but we're not out of our minds, we're out of their minds. The power of the Holy Spirit has put in us a conviction that didn't used to be there, a power over sin that didn't used to be there. And maybe you're not perfected yet, Brandon, but you're not where you were. Michael, do you remember what it was like to have somebody attack your fist with their face? I do. I remember that. And that's not us anymore. God has changed us. And no matter what you're facing now, maybe you think your children are about to overrun you. Or maybe your finances are strangling you. Or maybe ever since you came back from Peru, life just seems more hectic than it has ever been before. This is the warfare, friends, and it's worth thinking about what you were before so you can appreciate what God has done. I'm now 38 years old, and I was a spoiled, self-indulgent 18-year-old when I was born again. After 20 years, it's not hard for me to see what the Lord has done. I would have been happy to be a football coach and a social studies teacher. Can you imagine how fat I would have gotten? <laughs> if I could wear those stretchy pants eat donuts and blow a whistle and tell other people to exercise. <laughs> to teach social studies, I would have to study like an hour a year, you know? That was my highest aspiration in life. And in these last couple years, God has put this church's work on five continents. That's worth thinking about when nothing else is going right. When you get a report that somebody's not doing right in the Lord and you're thinking all of a sudden, man, is this all just a joke? It's worth thinking about what God has already done. Amen. Look at what he's done, saints. It's worth celebrating his name for what he's already done. How about 2 Thessalonians 2? There's a reason that he saved you. This is the 13th verse. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord. How does he refer to them? Brothers what? Loved by the Lord. Oh, come on now. Say it out loud. I'm loved by the Lord. 
That's a perspective we can't lose in all of our concern about being obedient, in all of our concern about sacrificing, in all of our concern about taking the gospel to the nations. Don't forget you are greatly loved by the Lord. Not loved because you climb a mountain in Peru. Not loved because you give your last dollar. He loved you when you were a sick sinner. And he gave you the ability to turn around. Do you think he loves you more or less now? I bet he loves you more. But we ought always to thank God for you. Brothers loved by the Lord because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Why did he do these things? so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is God's destiny for you, Sharon? His destiny is that you share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his destiny for you, Jasmine. Can you imagine that God would look at somebody who was dead in their trespass and the uncircumcision of their sinful nature and he'd say, I want to give you a gift. I want to give you the chance to turn around. And he would grant it to you, not because of something that you've done. In fact, he would say you're dead when he did it. He said, Lord, my heart is hard. And I tried to follow you, but I can't. I'm not even capable. And he says, it's okay. I'll open your heart. And then he did it. And why? He wants you to share in his glory. Oh, Jesus. What did he have to go through to get that glory? Spit on, beaten, cast out by his friends, everything that we ever deserved, he took so that you could share in his glory. And sometimes we think because we're having a bad day, maybe he, he doesn't love us anymore. Because we're having a bad day, maybe the kingdom's not working out anymore. Maybe even we entertain thoughts we shouldn't about what would it have been like if we'd made different choices. And we forget we're destined for the glory that is God's. Yeah. Oh, man, today I sat with some missionaries who love me enough to tell me the truth, and they're telling me some other missionaries not doing all that good, that we hoped were doing good. I, I'm like anybody. I have a vast array of emotions. At first, I'm hoping it's not true, but I know the people talking to me, and they, they wouldn't say it if it wasn't. And it's kind of a second witness situation. And I thought, man, I will drive there and go right upside that dude's head. Well, that would accomplish a lot, right? If he's sinning and he's falling, that's what he needs is somebody to kick him, right? And I thought, Lord, how could somebody you've been so good to Start doing these things. And I thought, well, it's true. I've done those things. Lord, how is it that anybody makes it? And as I began to contemplate that, when you know that he destined you to share in his glory, it ought to do something in us. Check this out. Agents of shield. First Peter 1 and verse 3. Say there when you're there. Now, I know you have a big cheat screen in here, but you need a relationship with your own Bible because these screens are not going to follow you home. They're not going to follow you to work. They're not going to be there when you're being assaulted by a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon on the street and you don't know your Bible. So please turn there. Say there if you're there. First Peter 1, verse 3, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, say great mercy. great mercy, he has given us new birth. You didn't earn it, he gave you new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. You have an inheritance that is not dwindling away. If the government is shut down for a whole year, it will not in fact affect your inheritance. If the Republicans and the Democrats can never agree on socialized medicine, it will not affect 
your inheritance kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power. How is it that you stand? Well, you didn't save yourself. He gave you repentance. Why did he give you repentance? Well, it's not because you were wonderful. You were dead when he gave it to you. Well, how is it that you responded to his message? It's not because your heart was pure or noble. He opened your heart. Why did he do these things? He wants you to share in his glory. How is it that you'll make it to the end of this race? He will shield you by his power. You know why I don't have to worry about those missionaries? Because I pray he hears me and he loves them more than I do. They're able to stand because he will make them stand. He saved them. He's able to correct and encourage them. Come on, nobody's got somebody they're worried about. You didn't save them. The king of kings did. As we get to the middle of the race, these were all things that have to do with the beginning of the race. When you get saved, you have to remember how you got there. When you get saved, you have to know that it wasn't your work. You have to know that this is a divine intervention from the heavens. But in the middle of the race, it can become difficult, can it? Anybody in here set out to do something for the Lord and it blew up in their face? Okay, those of you that don't have your hands up, you're either too timid to raise your hand or you were too timid to try. But anybody who has ever tried, anybody has failed. That's just the truth. And you show me the man that never failed and I will show you a man that has lived as a coward his entire life. Because those of us that are trying to accomplish something for Jesus, we'd be lying if we said it went right 50% of the time. Thank you for that, brother. The truth is you step out on a narrow little tightrope of faith. And sometimes you fall off the tightrope. Sometimes you fall and it hangs you. And every once in a while you skip across it. It's almost as if the Lord doesn't want you to think that you're better than everyone else. It requires us to cling to verses in a way that a new Christian will never understand. They'll put them on their walls. Maybe they'll get some old lady to quilt it for them. But it won't be written across their heart the way that it is after you've lived through a few of these battles. How about this all too familiar scripture in Romans 8? It's Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Oh, that sounds so good, doesn't it? What happens when you don't like the things he's working in? You prophesied to somebody they would be married and instead they got divorced. Oh, you start trying to work out your little theological formulas. You said somebody would be healed because you're pretty sure God said they'd be healed and they didn't get healed. It is a lot harder to trust in these verses when you need them than when you don't. You understand what I'm telling you? Oh, we love these. We put them on the wall. And as long as we understand the way that he's working, we're excited. And we're like, <laughs> Romans 8, 28. But when you're crushed to your knees, when you set out to lease a building, and the building didn't go through. When you prayed for somebody to get out of a wheelchair and they went home in the same wheelchair, it's very hard to understand these verses. And yet we believe that in all things, God works. All oh, saints, are you in some things now? Is he working in some things now? In maybe ways you, you know, you would like to just uh, pass. <laughs> That's what the kingdom is about. That's the middle of the race. Everybody has a good beginning. And if you tell a man he's got a week left to live, most of the time he will straighten up his house. But in the middle of the race is when you have to believe that he's working in the situations that you don't understand. You know, I would a whole lot rather that we didn't have some of the problems we have. I'm not going to glorify them by speaking them out loud where the whole world can hear them and glory in them, but... We're pretty open, church. I would rather not be facing some of the issues that we face. And yet I'm convinced 
that somehow or another God is working for our good in them. Judah got pulled over for the second time in one week for an inspection sticker. Can't be frustrated. It's the law, right? Of course, the guy lives about three blocks from our house. And he's pulled Judah over in his own driveway twice. The first ticket window of grace has not even expired when he's pulled over the second time. I'm sitting there thinking, we do not have any more money. Is that an okay thing for me to just acknowledge before you? I know my son. He's certainly not trying to do something wrong. He scraped together all the money he had to buy the manifold that we were waiting to put in. And if his dad wasn't so lazy, we probably would have had it in already. Instead, I waited two more days and took it to Bosch. <laughs> Sometimes when those things happen, it's difficult to see where God's working at it. And in a moment, your attitude can turn from heavenly to hellish. Oh, I'm the only one that's been that way, huh? Why are the women nodding and the guys are stoic? You ladies are so much more spiritual than your husbands sometimes. The wives, if y'all could see my perspective, the wives are out there going, and the guys are like, Officer turned out to be nice. If we give him a letter tomorrow that shows that Judah got his inspection sticker, he's not actually going to file the ticket. When I was Judah's age, I would have handled that so much different. <laughs> if a police officer had messed up and let me know where he lived. <laughs> Look, God found us in the midst of our trouble. Romans 8.28 teaches us a principle, and because it's a one-liner, you can't just dismiss it. The time period in which Israel is being told this is the most tumultuous, gut-wrenching time period that their nation would ever go through. It wasn't even this bad on the 9th of Av in Babylon. And the reason being their temple was going to be destroyed, not to be rebuilt again until the time of the Messiah's return. The Jewish nation had a schism in it. Those who believed in a Messiah and those who did not believe in the Messiah. And in the middle of that, Paul speaking to his brothers, while the, his brothers who are believers and Jews, says God works in all things. Could there have been a bigger slap in the face? I mean, you wanted to just cry over the state of your nation. And, and in the middle of this, just maybe lose all hope. And it's just a few chapters later, he says, oh, and by the way, all Israel will be saved. How can you make a statement like that while all Israel is perishing? It's almost like he knew the character of God that when he birthed a nation or he birthed you, a priest of God, he had a destiny in mind for you and he is able to make you hit that destiny. All you have to do is not stand stiff-necked against him. Do you believe God's for you tonight? I believe he's for us tonight. I believe his power is shielding us. Look at Philippians 2 with me. Say there when you're there. The 12th verse. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Look at this part. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. How do you find the strength to set your will on his will, Cody? Well, he is at work in you to cause you to do it. How do you find the strength, Curtis, to act in a way consistent with his will? He is inside of you, giving you the strength to carry out that act. That sounds like a God who is intimately involved in your life. 
And what's the balancing factor? Oh, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means that you are very careful and respectful of that power that's at work in you to make sure that you're yielding to him at every turn. But make no mistake about it. It is him inside of you that is shaping your will. Him inside of you that is giving you the power to carry out certain deeds and acts. If he's working inside of you and he works in all things, where is the room for hopelessness and despair? Come on, guys. If you were on death row and you were pardoned, would you be happy or sad? If you were pardoned and a month had gone by and you got a traffic ticket, would you feel like you were under all the burden of the state's prosecution? Or would you just kind of laugh because you know what you had already been set free from? See, these are light and momentary trials. They're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed where? In us. Turn with me to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Who's going to give you the power to be pleasing to him, David? He is. Who's going to give you the equipment, Lindsay, to get through this life in a way that is pleasing to him? He is. What depends on you? If you didn't decide to repent, he gave it to you. If you didn't decide to follow him, he opened your heart to it. If you didn't prepare your life to be acceptable to him, he found you while you were dead. If when he chose to give you birth, he destined you to be in his glory, Larissa, how much of this even depends on you? We preach a gospel of personal responsibility all the time. You hear me. You hear me week in and week out, and I'm not about to stop it. Someday I'll be right back on that same horse. But tonight it might be worth considering how much of this he's already doing for us. We may not have to strain and struggle quite the way that I always present it, but I'll forget I said that, and Sunday I will tell you to strain and struggle. He gives you the equipment. He will cause you to succeed. You ask him and he will build into you a life that is pleasing to him. That's a far cry from a God who's looking to squish you because your life's not pleasing. If your life's not pleasing, you're probably better off than when you started to follow him. I'm not justifying you where you are. What I'm trying to tell you is this may not be as negative as you think it is. He might simply be using one more tool in your life to cause his will and good purposes to come about. And maybe even the struggle that is kicking your feet, maybe that in itself is making you more dependent upon his grace and more appreciative of what he's done for you. Anybody fail more than once at the same thing? Oh, you've got some proud people in here, huh? Anybody in here fail more than once at the same thing? How could every hand not be up for that? Like, I'm going to go get the lie detector test. Tell you like I tell my kids when I ask them a question, I'm not sure they were honest. I said, hold dad's hands, look in my eyes. The Holy Ghost is going to tell me you're lying. <laughs> it's worked every time so far. When you fail more than once at the same time, it's humiliating, isn't it? I mean, nobody likes to stand up. I heard a masculine holiness repentance a few weeks ago. A guy said, I'm a wicked person. And the truth is, I want you to think better of me than I actually am. And I'm sorry, the other night I misled you. That was, I admire that man more after hearing that than I ever did before. You know why? He wants with all of his heart to get right with God. And the truth is, every person who heard it was paralyzed with conviction because none of us think of him as a wicked man. And if he said that about himself under the power of the Holy Ghost, where'd that leave the rest of us who were bravely silent? 
when we know where we're at, that in and of itself is God working in us towards a life that is pleasing to him because it's something he can work with. I tell you, to have a problem in your life that has whipped you more than once gets you very acquainted with God's mercy, doesn't it? I'm not talking about a license for immorality. I'm talking about something that you learn to hate because if it were not for God's mercy, you would have no chance. Would any of you have a chance if it were not for God's mercy? Equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's another great one-liner. Look at Romans 14. For some reason today, this one came to me like a lightning bolt. Are y'all getting enough scripture tonight? You run away tonight and say, that man can't preach out of a wet paper bag, but you will not be able to say we did not quote the scripture. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. How is that for a scripture on a refrigerator? I want you to think of the context in which Paul is speaking. He's talking about a man who's weak in faith and a man who's strong in faith. Those of you that are very pious about what you eat and drink, you should read that chapter. The man who is weak in faith is the one that cannot eat and drink whatever he wants to. The man strong in faith in that chapter is the man who can eat meat and drink wine. But listen to Paul's confidence even about his brothers who he sees as weak in the faith. Listen at his confidence. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. When is the last time you saw a brother you thought was weak in the faith blowing it on the wrong side of an argument and you went, oh, he'll stand because God's able to make him stand? Maybe we put too much trust sometimes in what we can or can't do. If the Lord chose him for salvation, Paul's feeling is the Lord will make him stand. Come on, is that not encouraging anybody here? I wanted to go take somebody who's about five foot and make them four foot today when I heard some ways they weren't standing. But Romans 14 says God's able to make him stand. And if God's able to make him stand, maybe I need to just back on out of the situation. He may not need me as much as I thought he did, Charlie. Apparently, not as much of this depends on us as we sometimes think, preach, and teach. Now, you're getting a temporary reprieve tonight. Sunday, I'm going to tell you all about what does depend on you. But I think there's got to be a balancing factor to this. If it depended upon your performance, none of us would have any hope. Come on, ladies. How many of you have felt like a failure sometime this week? Let's just go ahead and say, okay, we did. <laughs> but Jesus is not, and he bought me. And he's credited me with his righteousness. Come on, guys, anybody not feeling uh, full of worth lately? Yeah. Maybe we just go ahead and say, you're right, I'm a pretty despicable guy. But you know what? He bought me and he destined me for glory and I'm going to have it. I'm going to have it. I am going to have it. Nobody can snatch me from his hand and as long as I don't run out of it, I can have it. Might be worth thinking just a little bit about how much he loves you. Here comes Philippians 1.6. It kind of summarizes some of the things that we've been saying tonight. Is it all right if we just let the Bible preach tonight? Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He began it, and he will carry it on to completion, Joel. It doesn't always look like that, but praise God, we're still here, aren't we? Anybody been on a slippery slope, on a fine edge? But if you're still here, it is proof he's able to carry it on. Oh, man, 
The real Christian's life is a life of constant repentance. When you come right down to it, you're course correcting every moment of the day because if it were left up to you, you'd steer it right in a ditch. But it's not left up to you. He will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. In the last 20 years, I've had some shots that I thought were going to kill me and Jennifer. We know what it is to change states, cities, have people we thought we'd run this race with forever bail out on us. Others that were still in the race but wanted us out of it. I mean, but the grace of God has carried us on to completion. And every once in a while, he does a really encouraging thing. I remember when Dee Dee and Steve came to Texas. God spoke to them and said there were two empty seats at a table. And he didn't lie. The truth is there was a whole table full of empty seats. But there were two that were vacant that really had broken our hearts. And they showed up. You know what? I hadn't seen them in years. You know? Had no idea whether we even still friends. But God who wants to carry his work to completion, brought it full circle. Y'all know I don't like Facebook much. We don't carry on long, warm hand walks on the beach on Facebook, you and I, and we never will. I do not live a digital life, and I'm not going to start. I sent Charlie and Joe a letter on Facebook out of the blue. I, I don't know if I've ever done that. I don't know whether I'll ever do it again. I just felt like I needed to. Now, sometimes pastors describe these things and they're like, mm, I was praying and the Lord said to me and I said, yes, Lord, and then he said, and then I said, and then, no, no, this is more just like it seemed like a good idea. Can you relate to that? A few weeks later, they end up moving to Sugarland. No real intention of coming to church, just, you know, it's where God's relocating them. An hour before I talked to Charlie, Gabriel May said, I need badly to lease my house. If you know anybody who will lease one, let me know. When Charlie calls, he says, do you know anybody's looking to lease a house? As a matter of fact, I do. And I'm pretty sure if you talk to him, he will convince you to do it because he's that kind of guy. <laughs> Probably the littlest house Charlie ever lived in. And he fixed it all and then Gabriel sold it. <laughs> God brought that around after 10 years. You know why? He wants to carry his work through to completion. The devil can't stop what God's doing in your life. It takes an awful lot of consistent hard work for you to stop what God is doing in your life. It can be done, but it takes serious hard-heartedness towards God. For the person who is halfway trying, God will work in your situation until he gets you all the way trying. He's good at it. He's been doing it a long time. He is going to have an inheritance for himself. He wants Spencer to share in the glory of God. He wants it. That's why he chose him. That's why he caused him to be born. He wants that from Spencer. And the Lord of glory is not denied what he wants very easily. Isn't that good news? Some of you have entirely too negative of an opinion of yourself. And that's just the truth. I don't want to be negative in describing it. It is just the truth. God does not find people, grant them repentance, open their hearts, save them from the uncircumcision of their sinful nature, and destine them for the glory that belongs to Jesus if they're not greatly loved by the Lord. That has to mean something. I remember when I got a letter jacket in high school, Jennifer wanted to wear it. When I got a class ring, she wanted to wear it. It was a way of letting everybody know I valued her. I was happy for her to wear it because I didn't want anybody else to think that she was available. When we wear the name of Jesus, it means that he values us. He pursued us. He loves us. He fought for us and he fights still. Pretty hard to see yourself then as not worthy if you understand how he sees you. And let's just get real. What is our biggest problem this week? A teenager got a ticket? 
a four-year-old acted bad at school. If he can't be bad at, at four, when can he be bad? I've seen a lot of bad kids. They don't stay that way if we work at it, right? No, nobody can give me an amen for that? Children that become bad adults become bad adults because nobody got in their lives to correct it. But if you're going to be a good parent, it's going to take constant combat. Where, where are the Molochs at? Constant combat? Constant combat. But you know what? Two adults can whip a child. You can do it. You get good at it, you can whip four or five children. We do it. Yeah, on P-Row. And they can cry, they can run around and try to bit, pit parents against each other and everything else. You just get good at it. You go, yeah, I'm going to beat you and she's going to beat you too. <laughs> and if you do it again, we'll beat you again. And, and if you're not understanding how this works, when you do that, you get beat. <laughs> you know? God works in all things. But you know what? Those kids' spirits aren't crushed. I've watched them turn into... Elliot Sims visited here not long ago. A respectful, godly, well-spoken young man. He was a terrible kid. Terrible. terrible. I'm talking about had to pull his mama and daddy aside and say, you know, I don't know whether you know it, but your kid is awful. Awful. And they got all kind of offended and all and said, you know, what do we do? I said, beat him. When he does that, give him a physical reason not to do that anymore. It was a long, slow process, but you know what? What's that kid now, 6'2"? He's too big to beat, and you don't have to anymore because he loves the Lord, and he loves his parents, and he honors them. You know, guys, today's battles, they don't define our whole lives. They don't. What is overwhelmingly difficult right now will be laughable at some point in the future. I had a... Let's just move on. Let's talk about the end of our lives. Is that okay? Yeah. We'll get to an end of a message at the end of our lives. Is that okay? Yeah. Go with me to John. In John, the fourth chapter, and 34th verse. Say there when you're there. I'm going to wait on you. There you go, brother. You know, the kingdom of God doesn't come to an end when you struggle to pay your rent. It doesn't. I, I've, I've lived through repossessions. I've lived through all kinds of things. You know what? None of it's pleasant, but it taught me valuable lessons. I learned to hide a car like nobody's business. I'm kidding. I mean, I'm not kidding, but that is not the only <laughs> lesson I learned. And guy says, uh, you know, we will come get your car. I said, if you can find it, you can have it. <laughs> you know, in 75 pieces. But, um, I'm making light of difficult things because you know what? They don't define my life. When you see me, do you see a man who's struggling to not have his car repossessed? I don't even have car payments anymore, you know? God, God has a way of allowing you to go through a process to teach you certain things. I learned that it is more valuable to have one that is older, leaks oil on your driveway, but is paid for. I learned that. I learned not to put myself in a financial prison. I did. I also learned that I didn't need everything I thought I needed when I thought I needed it. But you know what? If you can't make those mistakes in your early 20s, when can you make them? When I was 21, I was trying to live like I was 51. And it caught up with me pretty quick. I had much of the talent that I would have when I was 51 at 21 and none of the wisdom to know how to use it. You know? But God worked through those things. I know what it is to struggle. And I'll say this, what was a struggle then is not even a struggle now. The things that I struggle with now probably in 10 years will be laughable then. They keep adding zeros to these numbers, and the number of pressures multiplies. But God's at work in it all, you know? Uh, I can't tell you the feeling that comes over you when a missionary calls for the third time, and you know why he called the first time. And you don't want to say no, but you don't know how to say yes. I can't tell you what special pressure that is, you know? And yet... It really essentially is the same pressure that when you're in Walmart and your kid wants something. It's exactly the same thing. 
You want to give them everything, and it's not your job to give them everything. It is your job to do what the Lord tells you to do. And it's sin to do anything other than what the Lord tells you to do. It just feels different. It's packaged differently. But it's all the same things. God is working in your circumstances right now. Are you on John 4, 34? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and, and what? Finish his work. We have begun a race. Many of us together, many of us in this room locked together as we do life. We're going to finish and we're going to finish together. We're going to finish because we're shielded by the power of God. We're aided by His grace, empowered by His Spirit. He is working in us a life that is pleasing to Him. We are going to finish. Do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crops for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you, hear this, have not worked for. How many of you believe that your hard work is accomplishing something for God? I stood up and whined a little bit Sunday about my hard work. You may work hard at being in the will of God. That's true. But everything worth having in the kingdom is not obtained through hard work. It's a gift from God that we have to learn to walk in. You can preach repentance until you sweat to death. You can lose your voice. You can pound your fist until your pulpits come apart. But for somebody to repent is a gift from God. You can teach salvation and climb mountains in Peru and swim rivers in Honduras and face guns in Mexico to preach it. And praise God for all of those things. But only God can open their heart to the message. He has sent us out into a harvest field to reap something we have not worked for. This is one of the great paradoxes in the kingdom because it's the hardest work I've ever done. And yet, it's not our hard work that is really rewarded. It is his gift. I want you to think about that in your life. Do you have to struggle to walk in obedience? Maybe so. You are in a constant warfare. But is your walk with the Lord really a struggle? No, it's a gift. He's awarded you His love. He's awarded you His favor. He's credited you with righteousness in advance of your behavior. Think about that. The moment you were born again, I fell on my knees and said, Lord, change me. I felt his power enter the room and enter me for the first time in my life. It was glorious. He credited me with righteousness and I had not done anything. I had all the righteousness of, of God in Christ Jesus that moment and I had not stepped out of the room I was saved in. I had not witnessed to the first person. I had not read any of the Bible. I had barely prayed. I prayed the phrase, Lord, change me. And I was credited with righteousness. How's that for a workspace gospel? Now, because I love him, I feel indebted to him. Because I love him, everything that I have, I want to be at his disposal. And for the rest of my life, I want to introduce others to him. But let's be honest, he's even, he's in, isn't even that a gift? Can you introduce anybody you want to to Jesus? I mean... It'd be a sales pitch like a rainbow vacuum, but for him to really meet Jesus, it's got to be a gift. He has to open their heart. He has to give them the chance to repent. Have you preached to people till you're blue in the face, said everything perfectly, you got all your little T's crossed, all your I's dotted, and they just couldn't see it? You preached to another one, misquoted four scriptures in a row, they fell on the ground and got saved? I mean, it's true. It does not depend on you and yet your obedience is required. This is a great paradox in the kingdom, but it is worth considering that he has simply gifted you with certain things. He simply loves you for no other reason than he chose you. Yeah. Israel is the forerunner, and he says in Deuteronomy 4 why he chose them. It's basically because they were pathetic. It's basically what he says. And I set my affection on you. 
He set his affection on you. Please don't act like you don't have it. Is that fair? Larissa, do you have the affection of God? Kevin, do you have the affection of God? Yeah? Sharon, do you have the affection? If you have the affection of God, then what are you really lacking? If you really believe that the Lord loves you, then what is it that you're lacking? So you have all these pressures in your life. How do they compare to how much God loves you? Turn with me to uh, John 5, 36. Say there when you're there. We have uh, about three scriptures. John 5, 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I'm doing testifies that the Father has sent me. The living God is going to cause you to finish because he's able to make you stand, because in all things in your life he's working, because it is him who works in you a life that is pleasurable to him. He is going to cause you to finish. All you have to do is submit to him. This race does not have to be drudgery. Are you all going to succeed in the preschool and in the homeschool co-op, Jennifer? Yes. Are you all going to succeed, Cassidy? Do you have days where it feels like you're not going to, Teresa? Yeah. But you know what? In the name of Jesus, even in those days, he works through this. It is going to work. And you know what? This is our labor of love for the Lord, isn't it, Suzanne? I walked in today and I forgot you didn't work on Wednesday and Patricia was in your seat and I missed you. This is something that we get to do together. And not just that, every mission trip. If, if we go to a country and we see people saved and we see people spirit-filled and we build something and, and it's awesome, and two years later somebody's not doing well in the Lord, does that negate what we did for the Lord? Does it wash it away? You know what? You can tear down buildings. You can't tear down the testimonies in people's hearts and lives. And once they've seen it, it can't be unseen. Philippians teaches us that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. You remember that old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look fullness into his, full into his wonderful face. What a great song. Sometimes in the middle of all of this, in the middle of the inevitable trials of life, anybody in here get married? And of course, it's all wonderful. And it's full of trials, isn't it? And you can't explain this to people before they get married. You try, you tell them that it's going to happen, you put it in their wedding vows, right? For better or for worse, richer or poor, all that. And they're like, oh, yes, I, I love him so much. Six months after they're married, they look like they've been through a war. And you're like, <laughs> now you'll know what we're talking about. Yeah, can we go through marriage counseling again? Sometimes in the middle of all of this, we have to fix our gaze on Jesus. And what is the next phrase? The author and perfecter of your faith. He began it, he will finish it. He began it, he's going to tweak it to be something that's pleasing to him. If God called Baj and Natalie, he has not given up on them because it's Monday. He doesn't. Instead, God is big enough to work in every event of their lives to bring their faith to a perfect place that he is pleased with. And before their lives are done, they will arrive at a place where they can say, it is finished because they love him. And he's going to make sure because he destined them just like Sasha. He destined her to share in the glory of Christ. He chose to give her new birth so that she could share in his glory. Who's going to stop her? Is the devil? Do you really think he's that big? The only person that can stop her is her, and I don't think she's that big either. 
Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How many of you have heard this scripture before? Of course you have. I want you to consider when we say author and finisher, author and perfecter of faith, look at what he had to go through. How holy did he look on the cross? How big a success did he look on the cross? How about in Gethsemane? Is this a kind of man that you want to follow? Somebody the world flocks to. But where did he finish up at? The right hand of God. The same God that began this work in him brought him to its completion. And now he knows how to finish your faith, whether you're in the Garden of Gethsemane being pressed, whether you're being crucified, or whether you're crucifying yourself. He knows how to bring this work to a glorious end. Do you believe he wants to, Pat? You've been through a few trials in your life, but you know what? You're still here. Still got something to offer. Y'all believe Patricia's got something to offer? The woman is a vault of wisdom. She just makes you pry it out of her. Y'all should pry it out of her. She's got good things to share. And you know what? God built that into her. He has been, and you know what? Probably if she had a choice as to whether or not she went through some of those things, the answer would be a big fat no. He doesn't always leave it up to us. They're not electives. They're required courses. I didn't understand. I had to choose two electives in high school, and if they were electives, why did I have to take them, right? Spanish was the most difficult class I ever had. Wasn't that terrible, Jennifer? Were it not for daily brownies and constant flattery of the teacher, we would not have passed. I would not have passed. That's the only class I ever struggled in. Do you remember her? you remember Mrs. Meyer? I don't know if she's still alive, but I remember flattering her daily about her appearance, about everything that I could just working to get a decent grade. That's back when you didn't have to worry about strange things with teachers. They taught us, and that was all. Go to Acts 20. Two scriptures. Can y'all hang in there with me for two scriptures? Yeah, it's okay. Are you learning anything tonight? It's definitely a different message than we normally preach. Every once in a while, you need a change-up pitch. And you do, because if we hear the same message every week, even a true message can be contorted out of its proper bounds. People have done that with the grace message. They've preached grace until they've morphed it into something that's not grace. What I hope tonight is to bring into balance the truth about what he thinks about us and how much he values and loves us and what that ought to do to our daily life. Are you in Acts 20? Here's an attitude I would love to follow through with. It's verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying the gospel of, what's it say? God's grace. We love Paul because he worked so hard. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He spent time in the sea. He was cast out by his own brothers in danger of false brothers, in danger of robbers. So many things, beaten with rods. And he was willing to do all of that to testify about what? God's grace in our lives. No matter how great Paul was, he couldn't give anybody the gift of repentance. He couldn't do it. All he could do was talk about the holiness of God. God had to give the gift of repentance. No matter how great Paul was, he couldn't find anybody worthy of being saved. Everybody that he found was dead in their sins and the uncircumcision of their sinful nature. No matter how great Paul was, he couldn't open not even one heart to the gospel message. God did all of those things. And then he put his spirit in people so that they would finish what they started. And he's able to make them finish. You're ready for your agents of shield? 
Here comes Deuteronomy 33, 29. Of course, we had the first Peter scripture about shielded by God's power, but I love this one. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will trample down their high places. I'm here to tell you, church, all the power of hell cannot stand against you. All of the fiery darts that the enemy has, the Lord is your shield. The Lord is your glorious sword. You don't need to do anything but hide in him, and he will do everything. The proof of that is he caused you to repent. He opened your heart to a salvation message. He testified to his power in you when your life began to change. And his power is still at work in you to cause you to have a life that is pleasing to him. He's at work in all of your circumstances, and he is there with you as an agent under his shield, ready to do warfare with all the power of hell. And it cannot overcome you because he is that big. So through good report and bad report, genuine and even regarded as imposters, you can smile and laugh in the face of the enemy and say, whatever you have to say about me is probably true, but he loves me anyway, and I will not bow the knee to you. Amen? Is a God like that worth celebrating? Worth renewing our covenant with?